0: Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I'm your host, Nick Agar Johnson. Today, we're going to be talking about one of the perennially more interesting teams in the league, the Philadelphia 76ers. I'm back once again with my usual Sixers podcast friend, I guess
1: would be the right word.
0: Podcast uh, partner?
1: Yeah. Yeah. We're friends, right?
0: <laughs> Either of the above. Both of the above, really. Back with Jordan Christmas. Jordan, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing. Okay, I guess, considering where the Sixers are in the season, you said one of the more interesting teams in the Eastern Conference, which is a very apt way to put it, I guess, uh, but we'll go more into this when we start when we start talking about the Sixers. A lot of inter- interesting stuff going on.
0: So we will talk about some of the more interesting, for better and for worse, things that have been going on with the Sixers, but I wanted to start with one of the I guess interesting is again not the right word, but certainly a calmer part of the Sixers offseason was the return signing of JJ Reddick after his one year twenty-three million dollar deal expired. And he seemed like an almost perfect fit for the team at the time when he signed last offseason. How has he looked so far in his second campaign in the Sixers uniform?
1: Um, he's kind of going through a little shooting slump right now, but it's only a couple games. JJ Reddick's one of the best shooters in NBA history I don't think he gets talked about enough from a historical perspective as a shooter but he's in a new role right now Brett Brown has him uh, coming off the bench um, in order to I guess make this starting lineup with Fultz and Simmons in the backcourt work but you know, J.J. Redick still playing his usual 32 minutes a game. So it's one of those things where the starting position really doesn't matter. He's going to be finishing games, and he has been. He's He was an integral part of the team last year. I mean, the Sixers needed a shooter um, over the summer, in the summer of 2017. That was one of the huge needs that the Sixers needed. And they landed, like I said, one of the best shooters in NBA history. Him and Joel Embiid have a great two-man game. That has been going on for um, a season plus now. Um, He was an integral part of the team and also kind of that veteran leader that a bunch of young players needed in a locker room. So new role, but the same stats and production, I guess, is the right way to put it. So I do want to
0: circle back to the decision to take J.J. Redick out of the starting lineup a bit later on when we go into the rotations in more depth. But talking about his shooting and, as you rightly pointed out, his historical shooting ability, I think the thing that makes J.J. Redick the best fit for this team is not only is he not the kind of on-ball three-point shooter, like a Steph Curry type, Kemba Walker type, Damian Lillard type, the type that creates their own shot, JJ is sort of in the Ray Allen echelon as an incredibly talented off ball three point shooter. Right. He runs more than almost anybody else in the league pretty consistently over the past few years on the offensive end, at least. I mean, he is working every second of every play to get himself open. But not only does he not need the ball, but he actually does better without the ball in terms of getting himself open for three-point shots. And on a team when you have so many guys that really do best with the ball in their hands, I think it's incredibly valuable to have someone like JJ who is going to be a complimentary piece, not just because he can do that well, but because that's actually what he's best at.
1: Yeah, there are possessions where... JJ can run sprint pretty much for 20 of the 24 seconds in the shot clock. And it's not just sprinting, it's sprinting and then stopping and going. And, you know, defenders know what JJ wants to do. And somehow he always gets himself open. And the spacing, like you mentioned earlier, I mean, the Sixers' best players need the ball in their hands to be the most effective. And JJ is the type of player where. You know, he doesn't need the ball in his hands, but he generates so much gravity because he is such a great shooter and that spacing is important for, um, you know, Simmons and Embiid and Fultz. Um, so J.J. Redick was a much needed signing, especially when Brett Brown, after saying that he wanted to go, quote unquote, star hunting, um, basically didn't get any stars. And, you know, so J.J. Redick was a welcome sight when he uh, re-signed with the team. Let's talk
0: briefly about the Wilson Chandler and Mike Muscala acquisitions. I thought that Wilson Chandler was really hard to rate over the past few years because he's been solid in a number of different ways in Denver, but I think his defensive prowess was certainly overrated. And he's basically, for all intents and purposes, not played so far for the Sixers, This season, he's played 10 minutes in one game, but I think he could be a valuable piece on their bench going forward, certainly.
1: Yeah, so Wilson, I kind of had this Twitter back and forth with fellow hashtag uh, basketball writer for the Raptors, Jordan Kligman, on Twitter about this, um, because there's this whole thing, and we'll talk about it more later when we talk about my piece, um, my latest Sixers piece, but Wilson Chandler is... I look at him as a replacement for Marco Bellinelli, and like you said, his defense has been overrated. It's taken a step back. He is 32 years old, so naturally he takes a step back, but the Sixers, one of the things that this, that was exposed when the Sixers played the Celtics in the playoffs was the lack of two-way wings and guards on the roster, and Wilson Chandler kind of, kind of, he's still solid on that end. I'm not saying he is what he used to be or is a lockdown defender or anything, but Average an average defender at the wing spot that doesn't get burned every possession by opposing ball handlers or wings is a much needed upgrade for the Sixers because behind Covington and Simmons, you look at you look up and down the roster. You there isn't really any credible two way wings that, uh, that the Sixers have that could you know in a pinch back up Covington or Simmons and Chandler brings that and he brings a little bit of shooting too. I mean, shot thirty eight percent off the catch uh last year which a catch and shoot shooter is something that can fit well around Simmons and Embiid so Wilson Chandler was a much needed addition Mike Muscala also to replace Ilyasova I think he's younger bigger more agile and athletic just because he is younger than Ilyasova I think Ilyasova was cooked athletically last year even though he's a somehow still an effective offensive rebounder but Chandler is a more or excuse me, Muscala is a more effective shooter, a better shooter, and he could play some small ball five. So I think the Sixers upgraded from Bellinelli and Iliasova, who were buyout options. I think people forget that. Um, but I think they made well. The only problem is they haven't been healthy, which is why the Sixers bench looks bad right now. Yeah, it's weird with
0: Chandler. This is a stupid statement, but I'm going to say it anyway because I think it's kind of vaguely funny. He's kind of like a one and a half way wing rather than a real two way wing. (laughs) Like he's a credible three point shooter, but he's not a good three point shooter. He's an okay defensive option who has good size on the wing at around six, eight, and he can be effective on both ends of the floor, but he's not consistently effective on both ends of the floor. And I think people tend to look at his size and just think that he's better defensively than he is because he looks bigger than a lot of the guys he's guarding.
1: Right. It's just like when you look at a prospect in college that's six nine and has a like someone like Andrew Wiggins. Everybody assumed Wiggins would be as a prospect with Wiggins measurables. You think, oh, that guy's going to be good at defense. It's not how it works.
0: <laughs> yeah, Chandler is decent, much better, I think, on paper than he actually is in the flow of a game. But that being said, he was at least a capable fifth starter for an almost playoff team last year in the Denver Nuggets. And he's not going to be asked to do as much this season as he was in Denver. So even though I thought he was a bit overrated as someone who I don't think necessarily should have been a day in day out starter, I think he can certainly be an effective bench piece. But let's move quickly before we go into this season itself into a quick overview of the Sixers draft last offseason. And I think we came out on different sides of the Mikael Bridges-Zaire Smith trade last time we talked about it. And it's even harder to judge that now just because of the injury to Zaire Smith. But Mikael Bridges has looked really good so far in Phoenix. And It was also just painful for him to be in the middle of that press conference with his mother, who, again, is a member of the Philadelphia 76ers, (laughs) like works in their back office. And then, oh, yeah, we just traded Mikhail. Oops. Sorry about that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that was a weird situation. But yeah.
0: But in terms of what the Sixers actually did get from it, I think that Zaire Smith is another one of these guys that could be a pretty decent fifth starter if he lives up to his defensive potential. But even if he doesn't, I think just as a bench guy who can make the right reads in terms of cutting to the rim around Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid, he can be effective in a relatively smaller role. I think as soon as he comes back,
1: yeah. So I recently came. Well, we talked about this on my on my own podcast, the Open Gym Podcast. We talked about the Zaire Smith trade, and you know, you were much higher on Zaire Smith than I was leading up to the draft and then you know watching tape on Zaire smith again after we traded for him um i was a little bit more sold on him um of course as per usual is protocol with sixers first round picks you have to get hurt it's kind of uh tradition at this point before you play but I think there is opportunity for him to get minutes still immediately just because he is 6-4, he is athletic, he does have a plus wingspan. He's a freak athlete. Like I think he that is the one thing that immediately popped out at me even when I wasn't that high on him and he could defend 1 through 3. I think he could defend 1 through 3. He defended fours in college, but again that's the college level, but he did play power forward in high school, so he has experience guarding bigger players so we'll see how that is but one of one of the many flaws I guess because I'm going to be talking about the Celtics series a lot because it really exposed the Sixers poor roster construction is that not only did we have not enough two-way wings. We didn't have a point of attack defender, a like size point guard in the 6'2 to 6'5 range that could credibly defend point guards at the point of attack. And you look at someone like Zaire Smith and you're like, that's someone who would have gotten minutes in that series because TJ McConnell started um, in, I think it was game four when Brett Brown made the starting lineup change and benched Robert Covington. Like Zaire Smith, is a tenacious defender, at the very least, can switch one through three in the NBA. I could see if he puts on a little bit more weight, he can eventually probably guard fours. And I think he could hit a spot up three occasionally. I don't think the shot's broken mechanically or anything like that. He did shoot 40% from three in college, albeit it was like on 90 attempts or something like that. But summer league, the shot looked fine. Obviously he just needs to get reps at it, but I think Zaire Smith can get minutes immediately, even when he comes back from injury, though obviously he's gonna have to knock the rest off. And it was kind of like a the trade remind, it was a little bit hinky-esque. It was you trade down, you get an extra pick in the future, and you get a prospect who Brett Brown said Zaire Smith was one B and Mikkel Bridges was one A. So you get the prospect you want and you get an extra pick. So it was kind of pinky esque. It was a little flashback for sure.
0: So let's talk about the one recent first round draft pick for the Sixers who not only has failed to get injured through his first eleven games, but has actually probably been the biggest surprise of the Sixers' young season. I was not expecting Landry Shamit to be able to contribute in the way he has over the first couple weeks of the season.
1: Um, I guess it goes to show you if you can shoot and you can handle a little bit, especially in today's NBA and as the ever evolving NBA as we've seen so far this season with the pace and shooting, um, you can contribute immediately. Landry Shamit is already in the rotation, shooting thirty eight percent from three. Brett Brown is running the same sets for Shamit that he runs for JJ Redick. He gets he comes in as JJ Reddick's uh backup pretty much even though JJ comes off the bench himself JJ gets starters minutes so whenever JJ goes to the bench you can bring in Landry or you can have those two in at the same time and obviously the concern was with someone of his size was his defense but he's actually been better than I expected and that's relative because rookies are typically bad at defense and Shamit is bad but he's not a sieve he's better than Marco Bellinelli which again I'm going back to because people seem to think that Losing Marco Bellinelli and Urson Ilyasova is like losing two sixth-man candidates, apparently. But I think Shamit is already a better Marco Bellinelli replacement. I know that might be a little bit of a hot take because Bellinelli's an established NBA player. But Shamit's already provided that backup off-the-catch, off-the-screen shooter role. And it's been surprising. And it exposes that this is the first late first-round pick in three or four seasons that has worked out for the Sixers and just goes back to the roster construction, the failed late first round selections these last two or three seasons have contributed to why the Sixers roster is so wonky right now. Shamit is like the first late first round pick that has immediately contributed and is already better than what we've put on the court the last few seasons. So it is refreshing also to see that as well.
0: Let's move from looking at some of the offseason moves from the Sixers to looking at their early season. And I wanted to start out by talking about the most boring topic that one can discuss when talking about Joel Embiid, which is one of, I think, the best trends from the young season for the Sixers is despite the fact that as a team, they haven't been all that great about not turning the ball over, which I'm sure you will be able to discuss at length over the course of the rest of the podcast. Joel Embiid in particular has done a pretty solid job of cutting down his turnovers while remaining the absolute force that he has been on offensive defense since really his first NBA game. And it's great to see that he's starting to Get used to passing out of the post, get used to having the ball in his hands more frequently because even when you have Ben Simmons and Mark Fultz who, by necessity, are going to be taking over the majority of the ball handling responsibilities, it is helpful to see Embiid making the easier passes rather than kicking the ball into the stands like he did pretty frequently last season.
1: All right, so here are Embiid's turnover numbers from his first two seasons. Rookie year, he averaged 3.8 turnovers per game with a seven, with an 18% turnover rate. 2017-18, Two th- um, 3.7 turnovers per game with a 15.6% turnover rate. This year, 2.7 turnovers per game with a 10.2% turn- turnover rate. And given that Embiid is one of the What has been, in his short career, one of the more high-usage players in the NBA. I expect him to have turnovers or nights where he throws the ball away just because he has the ball so much, but the first two years were just too many, and it was simple stuff too, like not reading the double team correctly. He didn't know how to properly deal with double teams. And when you miss two and a half years of your career, the first two and a half years of your career, that's kind of going to happen. But also there were times where he would just go into black hole mode and try to do too much, and that would lead to a turnover. His ball handling wasn't as tight, but now he seems to be making ease so far at least. I don't want to jinx it or anything, knock on wood. Um, but so far he's making easier passes. He's reading the double T more and he's not wasting time. Speaking as, you know, my speaking from my illustrious career as a high school center at six feet tall, um, the, you want to make moves quickly in the post? You don't want to take three or four dribbles because the defense can just load up on you. And n b did too much of that. Obviously not comparing myself to Joel and just want to make that clear, but, He's making quicker decisions. He's making easier decisions. And he's deciding in one or two dribbles, I'm just going to go because no one can stop me because I'm too big. And I think that was, I think he has shown great patience this year in the post also. So, Embiid is doing better at taking care of the basketball and he needs to because the rest of this team, the lack of spacing, turnovers are going to be caused just because of the lack of spacing. Don't need to compound it when Embiid is throwing it all over the gym.
0: Speaking of which, let's go and talk about the player who is currently leading the Sixers in turnovers per game. Ben Simmons has been really inconsistent so far this year, I think. And it's strange to see just in the sense that he's so he's currently shooting 50% from the floor, which given that he takes literally zero three-pointers and is taking most of his shots right around the rim, it is kind of surprising to see him at that 50% mark. Even if that's solid for a point guard, it's certainly not solid for a point guard who's taking most of his shots near the rim. And especially after his brilliant rookie season, what have you seen from Ben Simmons so far this year in terms of just him not really... I don't know, I sort of get the sense that he hasn't really had it on a night-in, night-out basis as much so far this early season as he did pretty consistently throughout his rookie year.
1: So I, I get what you're saying, and I feel that sense too. Um, I I get that sense too when I'm watching... Ben Simmons. I will say though, um, in the second game, he hurt his back. He only played four minutes because he had back problems. So I don't know if the back problems are still persisting because he was brilliant against the Celtics opening night, even though we got destroyed. Um, but I think most of it, and you know, we keep referencing it and we're going to talk about it later, but I really think his The problem is, Markel Fultz is sharing the backcourt with Ben Simmons. And when you have two non shooters there, two shooters who are not only that, not only at the moment can't shoot accurately aren't willing to shoot then the defense is just going to load up in the paint which is where Simmons wants to go and last year when the floor was spaced with shooters with the starting lineup of um Simmons Reddick, Covington Sharich, and Embiid Simmons had more clear lanes to go to the basket and defenses while they could back off Simmons had a runway with his incredible athleticism to get to the rim now there's two or three defenders in the paint now especially with Fultz and Sarich currently struggling um shooting shots Um, and it's really made Simmons ineffective. Also, I just, I know development fan bases tend to overrate their young talent and underrate their young talent. Um, I have certainly been guilty of that myself and we assume that progress is linear. And I think a lot of fans this summer expected Simmons to immediately have a mid range jump shot and be able to at least attempt some three-pointers. And so far, that hasn't been the case. What I did expect, what I thought was reasonable, was that Simmons could be more reliable finishing with his left hand and working on his off-ball game, which, you know, being in the dunker spot and cutting and running off-ball in transition. And so far, there just hasn't been that. He took two left-handed layups against the Celtics the first night of the season. And so far, I've only seen him attempt one- Layup. And I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I do watch every minute of Sixer basketball. So I have watched every minute of Sixer basketball so far this season. And for for someone who allegedly shoots left-handed, but is a right-handed player, he he can't finish with his right. He loads up, he tries to contort his body so he can finish right. And defenses are just more keen in on how keen in on how to defend Simmons now. And he's struggling right now. Now I think he'll bounce back. I think he'll get through these struggles. I think he'll be, he'll still be a top 25 top 20 player this year. Cause I think he has shown better um, defensive acumen this year from last year, but so far on offense has been a struggle. And I, but when Foltz is off the court, I think Simmons has been fine. You just need to put the right personnel around him. But yeah, I, Get what you're saying. it's It's been a it's been a struggle for Simmons so far. It's been up and down, but I think he'll I think he'll uh, get through it.
0: So that actually does lead pretty perfectly into my next point, which is about the whole L. Fultz Ben Simmons dynamic. And on the one hand, I understand wanting to put L. Fultz in the starting lineup, given that certainly in the aftermath, it seems like the majority of his shooting issues were confidence related. But the jump shot still isn't fully back for him yet. It still isn't really back at all for him yet, to be brutally honest. And all of the numbers show that when Simmons plays with the regular Sixers lineup, they do fine. When Fultz plays with the regular lineup, they do fine. But when the two of them play together, and you were touching on this earlier, that's when it really starts to become a problem because... At this point in their career, defenses aren't even paying attention to them unless they're 15 feet and in. And when you don't have the spacing of Dario Saric or JJ Redick in the starting lineup, it just becomes harder to move all those pieces around, even if you have two guys who are, for the most part, although Simmons has been struggling with that this year, when you have two guys in Embiid and Simmons who are so good right around the basket, really all you need is at least feasible shooting from the other three guys on the court. And if you're playing Simmons and Fultz together, you just don't have that.
1: Yeah. So I'm going to flip this around actually. So I want to ask you a question because I feel like maybe somewhat I might still have biased eyes. I want to know what your thoughts are on Fultz because if specifically with his jump shot, because it's obviously confidence related. I think, everybody accepts that now i think people were in denial last year including myself but as the year got got along it was or went on it was obvious it was confidence related i want to ask you what do you think about this whole situation about his jump shot do you think it'll come back is he just broken because i'm still trying to figure this out myself and i have this it's not really like a hot take or anything but i think even though Fultz and Simmons have shown in, in, to be ineffective so far this season, I think you have to start them because I think this is the worst Fultz is ever going to be. I think this is the worst it's ever going to be. You have to rehabilitate you. Ha- if you want a third star, you're going to, ha- it's either going to be through Fultz or through free agency. And if Fultz works out, then that means his trade value is up or he becomes the third star. So I think there's nothing to lose from starting him, but I do wonder if that jump shot is coming back. So I, I wanted to know from an outsider, what do you think of this whole saga? It's funny, as an
0: outsider, I actually disagree with that. I think that the best thing for Marco Foltz right now is to be the sixth man for this team because if he's in the starting lineup with Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid, he's by necessity going to be the complementary player, even if he does sort of hit his peak potential, even if he starts playing as well as he did during his loan season at Washington, he's still going to be the third star on the team. So I think for now, rather than putting him in the starting lineup with Embiid and Simmons, where he's sort of questioning himself every time he's about to take a shot, you know, is this the best look? Should I pass it to one of the two stars? Am I hurting the team by taking this shot? I feel like that's going to hurt his confidence a lot more than turning to him and saying, all right, look, we tried you starting. You're not really working out that great with Simmons in the starting lineup right now. Why don't you come off the bench for the next 10, 15 games or so, and you're going to play a little bit less than you have been. You're going to play about 20 minutes a game, but during those 20 minutes a game, just do whatever you think is right. I don't care if it's a 35-foot pull-up with two guys in your face. If you want to take it, take it. If there are four open guys and everybody's crowding around you and you feel like, driving your way to the rim, go for it. And he's going to hurt you, I think, a lot less if you give him a smaller roll off the bench, but make it very clear to him when you are on the floor, you are the focus rather than what they're doing now, which is we want you to learn how to play with the two big stars. So even though your game as it is now with your questionable jump shot doesn't really work that well with Simmons and Embiid, You three are the future, so we're just going to sort of throw you all together and hope it works out. It's also worth bearing in mind, he's still only 20. Yes. So, you know, give him a year or two coming off the bench. Let him slowly rebuild his confidence rather than throwing him out there in the starting lineup with the two stars every night. I think that's going to end up much better than the current idea of, yeah, just try and make it work, even though the spacing isn't going to be ideal for either you or Simmons.
1: Yeah, I could see that side too and before the season I probably would have agreed with you. I just think at this point I get the long term. I guess I get the long term part of it uh, cuz faults this is this is so insane because if you had have talked to me in before the 2017 draft, I was so excited about this trade. Even though, even though even though Brian Colangelo gave up the Sacramento pick, in top and put a top one protection on it I was for this trade because I thought Fultz was still the clear best prospect and this wasn't because the Sixers had the number one pick the Sixers traded up to get the number one pick when we pick swapped with your team the Kings to get the third pick I was bummed out because Fultz. I saw Fultz as the best prospect in the draft and the perfect fit next to Simmons and Embiid because of his jump shot and somehow some way this could only happen to the Sixers this whole thing happens and I don't know I guess I see Brett Brown's point of doing it now that he's already doing it I think he has to keep going with it but my thing is don't do half measures don't do this start starting lineup in the first half and then put J.J. Redick in the starting lineup in the second half, I think that does worse for his confidence than actually being told to go back to the bench a full demotion because you're basically saying, okay, we're giving you a little chump change here, but in the second half we're going to go back to our real line. I don't know. That just sends a bad message to me. But I think at this point you just got it. I think you got to – we're not – I don't see ourselves as – a, a team that can beat toronto and boston in a seven game series and beat and simmons have to be superheroes to beat those two teams in a seven game series just because of how flawed the roster construction is so i think you have to see what you get out of fultz because we need a third the sixers need a third star i think to be on the same level as those teams and it's either coming through fultz or it's either coming through a trade because of his because he'll up his trade value because he's playing better as the season progresses or it's through free agency. I don't know. It's a tough spot. I guess I'm glad I'm not Elton brand right now, even though this is Elton brands first a year and a half into his executive career. He gets a GM job and he's thrown into this fire. Yeah.
0: Somehow I think he's done all right for himself over the course of his career, but it is weird because Coming into that draft, I thought Markel Fultz was the perfect third star for this team. You know, someone who could play on ball or off ball, someone who could be a really effective shooter around Simmons and Embiid, someone who could create shots for the two of them when he had the ball in his hands.
1: And run pick and and run pick and roll. The Sixers were dead last in taking corner threes last year, and that's a complete byproduct of the Sixers being in the bottom third running pick and roll. They ran nine hundred and forty. Uh, pick and roll possessions last year, that in, in today's modern NBA, that's even though pick and roll has kind of evolved since then from spread pick and roll, like we don't run pick and roll that often at all. And Fultz was also a maestro in the pick and roll. And we still can't run that now because he can't shoot.
0: Yeah, it is wild how much of a difference that shooting has made. But Speaking of shooters, let's talk about the most recent article that you wrote for Hashtag #basketball about whether or not the Sixers bench got worse this past offseason. And I think honestly automatically their bench was going to be at least as good as it was last year because as we've seen so far this season, one of JJ Redick or Markel Fultz was going to play a pretty sizable role on that bench and given that it's been JJ who's been the one coming off the bench so far this year, I think that alone makes their bench at least as good as it was, and honestly, probably better. But given our discussion so far about this, I'm sure you disagree in that the Sixers bench has gotten dramatically worse because they lost two superstars in Marco Bellinelli and Ursana Ilyasova.
1: <laughs> oh, I sw- the Sixers are going to be on national TV a lot this year. And so far, every time they're on ESPN, I see Paul Pearson um Jalen Rose and all those guys making reference to how detrimental the six how detrimental the losses of Marco Bellinelli and Ersan Iliasova are and it just makes me want to put my head through a wall like look I'm not saying Marco Bellinelli and Ersan Iliasova weren't crucial pieces to the Sixers 16 game winning streak last year I'm not saying that at all but it is important to put into perspective one, just how bad the Sixers bench was for the first four months of the season. They were 25th in efficiency differential, which is terrible. It was per hoopstats.com. They were terrible. Timotei luawu Cabarro, Justin Anderson, and Trevor Booker were part of the Sixers' eight-man rotation. Just think about that for a second if you buy if you get Marco Bellinelli and Ersan Ilyasova from the buyout market you're basically asking them to be better than those players which isn't a high mark to clear it's it's not now they did provide excellent spacing with their shooting Bellinelli off the catch Ersan Ilyasova as a stretch four Simmons excelled in all with him as the ball handler and four shooters surrounding him that fueled the 16 game winning streak Simmons was the engine of that team though is and so i think Bellinelli and Ilyasova, while they played important roles, the bench was so bad that it probably inflated their value to the eye test um, of people than than what matched reality, if that makes any sense, if I worded that correctly. They were exposed so badly in the Celtics series, and even in a little bit of the Heat series, but the Heat aren't as good as the Celtics, but... Brett Brown was stuck between do I play J.J. Redick and Marco Bellinelli together – and sacrifice defense for offense or do I put Robert Covington in who was struggling at the time and sacrifice offense for defense it really just exposed how much of an ineffective player Marco Bellinelli was because the first 12 games he was with the Sixers he shot 32 percent from three and still taking the same ridiculous fadeaway shots off one leg or whatever it's just that he got ridiculously hot during the 16 game winning streak and then once he cooled off in the playoffs he became an ineffective player. The Celtics went right at him every time. Ursan and Eliasova, same thing, did not shoot well in the playoffs. The Celtics went at them every single time. And in comes Muscala and Chandler. And like you said, J.J. Redick and Markel Fultz playing prominent roles off the bench automatically makes this team better. But I think the Sixers bench got younger with more upside. Like I mentioned earlier, Landry Schammett is has been better than Marco Bellinelli so far this year. He's, a better, he's already a better defender than Marco Bellinelli. Mike Muscala, he's a better defender than you think. I'm not going to sit here and, you know, preach about Mike Muscala's defense or whatever, but Mike Muscala is younger, more athletic, is a more accurate shooter, and you can legitimately play him at a stretch five instead of playing Ilya Sova at a stretch five. And Wilson Chandler, like we talked earlier, while he, as you so termed it, and aptly a -a one-and-a-half-way player, that is still better than, A negative player a minus one player if you will in Marco Bellinelli he won't get burned every possession so I think the bench just by adding Muscala and Chandler upgraded and Bellinelli and Ilyasova, like I said they were important they were very important to this team um to I get they were important in the sense that they provided what the Sixers needed which was more spacing but to act like two buyout guys where these crucial detrimental losses that the team can't recover from, we still have Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons. They're going to win 50 games just off that alone, just because of how good they are. But also, we forget... The Sixers can go into the buyout market again. Iman Shumpert, what if he's, what if the Kings go on, God forbid, because I don't want the Celtics to get the pick, if they go on a losing streak, Iman Shumpert could ask for a buyout. Trevor Ariza could ask for a buyout. Justin Holiday with the Bulls can ask for a buyout. There's more two-way wings, I guess, relative to Iliasova and Bellinelli last year. That would be way more effective players than... Bellinelli and Sova from a roster construction standpoint. So basically what I'm saying is the Sixers bench is is better already with more upside, but they can add players at the buyout deadline uh, this upcoming season.
0: So I am admittedly biased on this front because I watched the worst season of professional basketball that he has probably ever played. But I think Marco Bellinelli is one of the most overrated players in the NBA. I agree. He does literally one, literally one thing. Not even figured. Literally, he does one thing well, which is shoot the ball from long range. Other than that, his career averages two rebounds per game in almost 24 minutes a game, less than two assists per game in same time span, a little over half a steal per game. And those are just, you know, the obvious box score stats. And those stand out a lot less than the fact that he is a putrid, putrid defender. And the only time where he hasn't been an absolute tire fire on that end of the floor has been during his stints in San Antonio. And quite frankly, if the only time that you can not be an absolute disaster on one end of the floor is because Greg Popovich is your coach, I think that says a lot. And I think that it's entirely possible, honestly, that the Sixers got better by subtraction because everybody thought Marco Bellinelli was a lot better than he was because they saw him during that hot stretch when the Sixers won those 16th straight to close out the year. And, you know, they didn't see what is the vast majority of the Marco Bellinelli experience, which is there are 17 seconds left on the shot clock and Marco's pulling up for a contested 28-footer.
1: Preach, preach.
0: When, you know, name infinitely better player X who's right next to him can get the ball and take the shot for him
1: preach i mean those shots were what were driving me nuts his first 12 games as as a sixer these ridiculous contested um 28 footers earlier in the early in the shot clock Um, even as even if he had like a clean look where he could just rise up and shoot normally he would still fade back one leg just all this stuff and the difference in the 16 game winning streak it was just going in people overrated it so overrated those departures so much it was killing me on the inside so I'm glad you are preaching to the choir because Uh, You know, obviously, fans can be a bit biased, so I I just wanted to check myself, but it's glad to see that you agree with me also, because the Sixers bench is infinitely better just by subtracting Bellinelli, in my opinion. So thank you. Thank you.
0: (laughs) Happy to help. So since we're talking about Sixers, let's close out the podcast by talking about what's always the most fun to talk about with the Sixers, which is the future. And in terms of the future outlook, I wanted to get started by discussing something we've sort of touched on lightly at various other points throughout the podcast, but how many games do you think the Sixers are going to win this season?
1: Uh, So, um, before the season, um, when the Bucks hired Mike Budenholzer, I knew I was immediately sold on the Bucks because you and I, as you know, are big Giannis fans, so there is another powerhouse in the East that the Sixers had to deal with, and people had the Bucks ahead, ranked ahead of the Sixers. Some people did, at least I know Zach Lowe did. Um, and I don't, I didn't blame them. Like I, there's a complete case for the Bucs to be ahead of the Sixers. I think the Sixers will win fifty-two games, fifty-two to fifty-four games, and while that might seem like a regression, I don't win totals to me aren't necessarily indicative of whether a team progressed or progressed and or regressed um it's more of other teams got better the Sixers roster flaws are still very present but Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons are good that's basically the basis of why I think they'll win 52 to 54 games as far as the playoffs like I alluded to earlier Joel Embiid First of all, if they face the Celtics, he has to figure, He it's weird, he can dominate pretty much every other center in the NBA except for Al Horford and Aaron Baines, and they're both savvy defenders in that Al Horford just knows how to stand his ground, let Embiid back him down, and then get him up top with his length, and Aaron Baines is just a brick wall that Embiid just can't necessarily just move around and shove out the way, so unless Embiid and Ben Simmons turn into superheroes, I don't see them getting past the second round. The whole adage of the Sixers have the two best players in the series, that is true. That is definitely true. And that is a roadmap where I could see the Sixers making the Eastern Conference Finals. Maybe there's like a 0.5% chance they'll make the finals, which was Brett Brown's stated goal before the season. But the Raptors... To me, first of all, are the second best team in the NBA. I think they're the clearly the best non-Warriors team in the NBA right now. The Celtics, while their offense is a little janky, they still have some stuff to figure out. I still think they're also the cl- one of the best teams in the NBA. Milwaukee right now is better than the Sixers just because their roster makes sense. the The problem with the Sixers roster is it doesn't make sense right now. There's not enough two way wings, not enough, and I harp on two way wings, but also there's not enough shot creators off the dribble. The only people who can get penetration are Markel Fultz and Ben Simmons, but they don't have the threat of a shot off the dribble. The Sixers need some guards who can create off the dribble, not only for themselves, but for others. And that is a huge problem. And as long as those problems persist, I can't see them beating those teams. The Sixers have to continue to, I guess, stay the course because they're not going to be better than Boston and Toronto this year and probably Milwaukee. We'll see. I don't think the Sixers team will be the same by season's end but i don 't see them beating Toronto and Boston in a series i don 't know am I being too pessimistic for a sixer fan here i don 't know if i 'm uh <laughs> it just i'm just seeing i'm just seeing the realistic possibilities here the The way that Sixers lost to the Celtics on opening night was an exact it was game six of the eastern Conference semifinals pretty much It was an exact carbon copy of how we lost to the Celtics in the playoff series. So I don't know if I'm being too pessimistic here.
0: I don't think you are. In fact, I was actually considering, and I think this is probably honestly a more interesting question than how many games do you think the Sixers can win? I think the question at this point is, are they a home court advantage team? And I think they probably are.
1: I think they are.
0: But at this point, But at this point, I think it's going to be interesting come the end of the season to see whether they or Indiana take that fourth home court advantage spot, because I think right now the Celtics, the Bucks, and the Raptors are, all three of them, I think, clearly better than the Sixers. I don't think necessarily a lot better, but definitely better overall. And given that those three, I think, are locked in as kind of the top class of the Eastern Conference, it'll be really interesting to me to see who gets that fourth home court advantage slot. And while I do think the Sixers will beat out everybody else for it in the end, I think really it's just going to be between them and Indiana to see who gets that home court advantage because I think once you get below that top five, it's a pretty sizable drop-off. I think the drop between the top three to Philly and Indiana is a lot smaller than the drop between Philly slash Indiana and the rest of the Eastern Conference. So right now, that would be the Hornets in sixth seed,
1: right? And look, Indiana. I mean, it, I don't expect the the Pacers to get the fourth seed, but that wouldn't shock me either. It's not like one of those outcomes where I'd be completely floored by because Indiana's roster also makes sense. Part of basketball, to me at least, is having rosters that make sense, and you know, touching back on the Bucks. The Bucks surrounded Giannis with shooters and um, a coach that is perceptive to the modern NBA game. And I think Brett Brown is a great coach, and not, or not a great. Co- I think Brett Brown is a good coach. Um, and I think he is also hamstrung by the Sixers' flawed roster construction. My problem, then, but that goes back to my point. Simmons, if Simmons was, uh, you know. Ben Dietrich, the author, the one who broke the Brian Colangelo Twitter burner account story, hosts this basketball podcast called Cookies, and he had this hot take that was coming out of the oven saying that Simmons and Giannis were comparable. Now, on the surface, that sounds completely insane. But as he was explaining it, I did see where he was coming from in the sense that Giannis has a great roster construction around him. He has shooters around him. They signed Brooke Lopez, who can stretch the floor as a center. Simmons is hamstrung in, in Embiid is hamstrung by this roster construction also. And in this and in turn, Brett Brown is. And so the Bucks roster just makes complete sense and that's why i would put them ahead of philly right now myself but the sixers right now just don't have enough shot creators and two-way wings for this roster construction to make sense to where i could put them in the elite class it's just they're gonna be good because they have two of the 20 best players in the nba and Embiid, who is a mvp candidate um he would be an MVP candidate if the Sixers were playing better, but he is putting up some ridiculous numbers on ridiculous efficiency for a post player. That is post and post and the post game is supposed to be extinct from the NBA today, but he's somehow dominating. But right now the roster construction is just not good. And that's going to be the Sixers downfall again. And then they're going to have to try to play their hand in free agency, which is a zero sum game. Zach Low put it in. He, Zach Low put out a recent wizards article about free and in that piece he mentioned something about free agency being a zero-sum game you either get Kevin Durant or you lose and that's what the Sixers had last year you either get LeBron James Paul George or trade for Kawhi Leonard or you lose and the Sixers lost and now it's coming up again this summer this summer is going to be really important for the Sixers before Simmons contract comes up before Dario's contract comes up and they start having and they and the players on the roster start getting expensive. They're going to have to do something about this roster soon, or it could be the same problems and they're going to have to get more creative as the players get more expensive.
0: This is a bit of a strange distinction, but I'm going to make it anyway. I think there's a bit of a difference between a team and just a roster full of players. And that's something that has been very clear watching the Sacramento Kings this year is They have a team identity of we're going to push the ball at literally every single opportunity because we have the fastest point guard in the league in De'Aaron Fox and the fastest center in the league in Willie Cauley-Stein and a really fast recent draft pick big man who's also a ridiculous athlete in Marvin Bagley. And all of a sudden when the Kings went from 30th to pace in second, they started doing a lot better because that was an identity that made sense for them as a team and during the Sam Hinkie era and this is not a knock on Sam Hinkie at all because I think he did an excellent job with that team but his GM tenure the entire focus was we got to find our superstar we got to find our superstar we got to find another superstar to pair him with because that's how you build to a championship team and it was so much more about asset collection than it was about coalescing that group into a solid hole and I think the easiest way for me to think about that is look at a team like say the Memphis Grizzlies who for almost a decade had the team the team idea of grit and grind if you're going to play you have to be able to play good defense you have to be able to play smart you have to be willing to be extremely physical on the defensive end and that is a team that I think pretty solidly outperformed their talent during basically the entirety of that Grit and Ryan run. And on the exact opposite end of that spectrum, you have the Washington Wizards with two incredibly talented basketball players in John Wall and Bradley Beal, and someone who in theory should be the perfect third option for any team in Otto Porter But instead of playing together as a team, they do a lot of my possession, your possession, iso ball. John Wall sits around basically every time he doesn't have the ball in his hands, doesn't really do all that much with it. And you could say part of that is chemistry, and I think that's definitely fair. But there is, I think, a difference between just cobbling together a roster of here are the 13 best basketball players that we could find versus this is what our team identity looks like. How do we slot in players into that mold? And the most obvious example of that is the San Antonio Spurs because they have changed their team identity pretty frequently, actually, over the course of their incredibly successful run over the past couple of decades. But they mold their team philosophy to fit, all right, these are the players, these are our core three players. You know, what is their gameplay style like now when they're 25 okay who do we fit around that all right now they're in their 30s teams change a little bit so instead of being this post heavy defense first team we're going to focus on the fact that all these guys are incredible passers and we're going to put together a roster of incredible passing talent and you could see those sorts of examples and then look at a team like the Sixers where you have an incredible amount of talent but without Markel Fultz's jump shot It doesn't really fit together as well as you'd like it to. And once you've sort of reached that point, as the Sixers, really all you should be saying is, all right, we have Ben Simmons, who is an incredible passer with ridiculous athleticism for his size, but can't shoot at all. Your immediate instinct should be get every single shooter that we can between six foot three and six foot seven and put those guys around him. And they just have not And you see this a lot with teams that struggle that they, you know, keep getting these high lottery picks. And instead of thinking about how do we make these high lottery picks play together, this is when best player available becomes part of a problem because, you know, you have the moment where you draft New Orleans Noel, Joel Embiid, and Shelly Okafor when any two of those guys can't even play together.
1: Oh, boy. Yeah, I was and I was going to ask you, you know, one more question and take over as host of the podcast for one question. Like if you had if you were a GM and you and Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons were already on your roster, just those two players, what would you put around those players? And I think you answered it. I mean, just just imagine Embiid and Simmons on a team with a plethora of wings, say like the Raptors or the Celtics. That is the ideal That is the ideal roster for those two players. And so far the Sixers have failed at it. Maybe with this new regime, maybe Elton Brand has a better scouting eye than Colangelo did and they can find, you know additional wing players or guards in the draft, or, or something like that. And that's the other part drafting Timotei Luwawa Cabro for and Furcon Korkmaz in 2016. Those were failures. Timotei Luwawa Cabrera is now traded, doesn't get any time in Sacramento or in Oklahoma city. Furcon Korkmaz didn't get his third year option picked up and he's looking for a trade. Those are the rumors at least. And then in 2017, Brian Colangelo traded up, traded back into the first round, traded away a future Oklahoma City uh, draft pick. I think it was a second-round draft pick to get back. No, it was a first-round pick to get back in the first round and draft Onjes Posechnik, who was a 7-foot center, and because he didn't have enough room on the roster, he drafted Onjes Posechnik to stash overseas, and Poseschnik is probably never going to play a game for the Sixers. Meanwhile, the Sixers could have drafted Josh Hart, or Kyle Kuzma with that pick before the Lakers did. And every time I watch those two play, I'm thinking – man, they could play on the Sixers right now. Even Kyle Kuzma, who's struggling shooting the ball right now. Just any credible wing player. But because he's, he was saving roster spots for Jaleel Okafor and Nick Stauskas, who they traded away to the Brooklyn Nets and gave a pick, by the way, for Trevor Booker, who they later cut so they can bring on Marco Bellinelli and Ersan Ilyasova, they had to take Anjas Pasechnik, and he's never going to play for us again. Little misses like that. Fringe fringe decisions like that have so much impact on a roster it's almost like a death by a thousand cuts thing and it just high and going back to what i said earlier the landry Shamit pick just highlights the failures the many failures the thousand cuts that colangelo did that are now starting to add up and i think they can recover from this if they're smart but it's going the road is way tougher now i think and They'll be good for a long time because they have two star superstar potential. Well, Embiid's already a superstar, but Simmons is also very well on that way. But it's it's just it's frustrating when you think about all the stuff that's added up over the Colangelo era.
0: This is going to hurt, but you said earlier if I had a team and I had Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons and nothing else, what would I do? The honest answer is I would do everything in my power to get Drew Holiday as the third member of that team and then just get two 66 guys who can shoot and defend credibly. I think that's really all you need. And it hurts, I'm sure.
1: You want to know, you want to hear a funny story so before we end the podcast for my 21st birthday. i am never I was never a jersey guy, though I do regret not getting an Allen Iverson jersey cuz Allen Iverson's my favorite player ever and those black Sixer jerseys are my childhood, so I should have had a jersey then. My first jersey was actually a Drew Holiday jersey. My friend got it for me for my 21st birthday, which was during the 2012-2013 season. Six months later, Sam Hinkie was hired and Drew Holiday was traded away.
0: <laughs> it's tough because the Sixers wouldn't have gotten Joel Embiid and probably wouldn't have gotten Ben Simmons either if Drew Holiday had been on the roster that whole time. But oh, yeah. it's oh, just yeah. Oh, yeah. it's kind of I could see why it would be painful for a Sixers fan on the outside looking in because, man, Drew holiday with the two of them, you could put like anything around them. They're winning 50, 55 games.
1: Yeah. Now that Drew Holiday's healthy. I mean, he's been great next to Anthony Davis and he would be the perfect fit right now for the Sixers. I mean, most teams would be happy. Most fan bases would be happy with, you know, Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons. So I'm trying not to complain too much and make it all sound doom and gloom. But, you know, it's going to be tough to build. It's going to be tough moving forward. It'll be interesting to see how they fill out this roster moving forward. That's all I'll say.
0: All right. Anything else before we wrap up?
1: Check out my YouTube channel that I recently just started. It's called Sly Hooper. I'm trying to find my own style with making videos. I'm just experimenting at this point, but I find that making videos while is extremely long and monotonous, it is fun. Um, and you just, it requires patience, but I'm doing that right now. My open gym podcast is coming back. Um, still have to see about hashtag sixers. Um, that hopefully that'll come back soon, but yeah. And look out, of course, on hashtag basketball and follow me on Twitter, which is uh, not Sports Talk Xmas anymore. It's Sly Hooper X. So follow me on Twitter and check out my work.
0: Wow. You did all the plugs for me. I didn't even have to. <laughs>
1: hey, I'm here to help any way I can. You're the you're the Joel Embiid of the Deep Dives podcast. I'm trying to be Ben Simmons.
0: Oh, let's not go that far. Come on. <laughs> I will happily be the Ben Simmons of the Deep Dives pod to the great overlord Joey as the Joel Embiid of the pod. I'll take that one. You know one. what?
1: That, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. Shout out to Joey.
0: Shout out to Joey. You can find both of our work on the hashtag basketball website as Jordan so beautifully plugged just a few seconds ago. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating or a review rating and or a review on whatever podcast player you might be using. If you have any feedback about the podcast, feel free to reach out to me either via Twitter at N-B-A-J-O-H-N-S-O-N or via email nickaj.nba at gmail.com and as always, thanks so much for listening.